Hey guys, this is Bruce. Welcome to Convo Courses, uh, where we talk about cybersecurity, mainly GRC type stuff, governance, risk, and compliance. Uh, we're talking about information security. It's a little, it's a different aspect of cybersecurity that you probably have never heard of, a different aspect of IT that you never ever you've never heard of. Or you rarely hear about this kind of stuff. It's not in the movies, but it pays six figures and you can work from home with it. So that's why people keep coming back. And uh, this today, what I want to do is give you an introduction to GRC. What is GRC? Uh, what? Why would somebody want to do this? And then, and then we'll just open up topics. But let me start off by talking about, in general, what is what is it? Okay, so GRC is Governance, Risk, and Compliance. Another name for it is Information Security, Information System Security. Some people. They, they want to split hairs and say, well, cybersecurity is not the same thing as information security. It's kind of a tomato, tomato type thing. Um, but in this field, some people are, are like really adamant saying that, OK, I do cybersecurity. I do. That means hacking and monitor, managing firewalls and things like that. And information security is policies and writing documents and stuff like that. For the sake of keeping this as clear as possible. I'm, I'm going to intermingle the two terms. Information security, we're going to put it all in one umbrella. And there's different categories underneath cybersecurity as a whole. All right. And I'm talking about one that is not as technical. Um, it's in the weeds in, a, in as far as the laws and the standards, but not uh, it's not usually hands on like you have with uh, some parts of IT where you're actually implementing, uh, you're, you're actually installing operating systems or configuring firewalls or something like that. We're talking about protecting the information by working with the organization to manage the security. So think about it like this. When you go to your bank and you're making a transaction, you're making a deposit, you're making a withdrawal, Think about the transactions that have to take place, right? Even if you're on your on your phone, um, the information has to be encrypted. When you say I want ten dollars, you know, pulled out, or I want ten a hundred dollars put into my account, or whatever, the data that's that's coming from your phone uh, to inform your bank what transactions to make has to be encrypted. When the when the information goes there, when that notification goes there, there has to be other transactions all have to be secure. So we're talking about securing the entire transaction from the point, from the time that you actually put the numbers in your phone to the time that it, the transaction actually takes place at your, in the actual bank. That entire transaction has to be secure, right? How do they do that? It's more than just a person writing secure code in the app for that for your bank. It's more than the actual servers having some sort of um, some sort of script that takes the the command that you just sent and the message that you just sent and then deposit the money. There's a whole other set of things that need to happen there. First of all, with the app itself, that when they made that secure app, there was a process in place to make that app secure. There's laws in place to make sure the app is secure, uh, to make sure it's protecting your personally identifiable information. 
And that bank, when they initiated the implementation of that that app, when they said that we want to make this app, they had to follow certain guidance to protect your personally identifiable information. That's where information security comes in. It's before somebody even puts the code in place, before they even test the code, you have something called information security. That's GRC. That's where GRC comes in. They're testing the code. They're making sure the code is compliant. Before you even start, the design is being um, making sure that the design itself is secure. Um, the the actual code, the source code, the, I, the idea of it is all secure. Everything from start to finish is put in place. That is part of GRC. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about governance, risk, and compliance. Governance. Do we have the rules in place? Are we are we in line with the laws? Do we have does our organization have management in place to make sure that the right people are even coding that? That's governed part of governance. Uh risk. Did we test the code once we put it in place? Did we test it at every stage of the development of the code for that bank app? Compliance. Once we put it in place, is it in line with the laws that uh, the state laws, the country laws, the uh, the industry laws for the financial sector? Are all those in place? That's GRC in a nutshell. It's it's and when you talk about GRC, you're talking about different standards. What is a standard? A standard is is simply a set of rules, a set of laws. Different industries have it, um, such as retail. Governments have their own uh, set of laws. If you go to Australia, Australia has their own set of laws. The U.S. has its own set of laws and China has their own set of laws. For the most part, all of them are doing uh, best security practices. Now, there's other things that countries might add in there besides the actual best security practices like China might want to collect more information. You know, um, there might be some countries like the the EU is is a little bit more is a, is heavy handed on protecting act, uh, people's personally identifiable information. Um, different countries have a little bit of a different twist on on how they want to implement certain of federal and state and provincial laws. But every organization has to fit into those federal, state, and industry laws. And that's where standards come in. So me as an information security person, as a cybersecurity person, I don't really have to know everything that's in a law like FISMA. I don't have to know everything that's in HIPAA. I don't have to know everything that's in um, a name of law, right? What I need to know is the standards. Because the standards basically break down and have greater detail about what's in the law. As in a lot of times, to be honest with you, the law doesn't even go far enough to explain what you actually need to secure an information system. So the standards are actually much, much better. They're more in the weeds. A law has to be broad enough. If you think about it, a law has to be broad enough to cover many different organizations, many different situations, many different case studies. Um, use cases. It has to 
it has a law has to be very, very broad. So a lot of times when it's written, it has all this lawyer speaking. And even when you understand the lawyer speak, if you like me, read it half a dozen times until you understand it. <laughs> um, it's still not going far enough to explain what you need to actually do as an IT person. That's where the standards come in. The standards are actually telling you, OK, we need to do this, this, this and this. That's what the standards do. Let me give you an example of of a standard. Uh, standard would be like the NIST 800. The NIST 800 is a list of things that an organization is supposed to do. And it has even a breakdown of how you're actually supposed to do it. So um, I want to give you a real specific understanding of what I mean by a standard. Um, we mentioned NIST 800, but I might have something else I can show you. Um, a really good one is, um, I want to say NIST Cybersecurity Framework. That's a pretty good one where it's breaking down everything you need to do, but a better one as far as a standard that is being used by federal government in the United States anyway would be the NIST 800. I just want to show you on my screen what what I'm talking about here. NIST 800 Risk Management Framework. Uh, let me see. Why is it taking me to the site, man? Come on. Let's see here. NIST 800. Okay. The official site of NIST Risk Management Framework. So NIST Risk Management, let me show you my screen here. So what you're looking at right here is a breakdown of how the NIST risk management framework, um, the cycle that they have to actually implement risk management frame, the to implement the standards. So you've got a, a prepare stage, a categorization stage, a select stage, an implementation stage, an assessment stage, an authorization stage, and then continuous monitoring. And what it this all comes from the NIST 837, by the way, which has a, a greater breakdown of all everything I'm talking about here. But I just want to give you an idea of what a standard looks like and what kind of detail it has. And so in the prepare stage, all we're doing is saying, OK, there's a new system that we have. What do we need to do? Or this system is about to go through a new um, it has to be recategorized. This system has to has a new server in place that we have to make sure it's secure, right? So now we got to prepare the organization for this huge change that's about to happen or this new system that's about to come in place. That's the prepare stage. It's you're getting you're getting the organization ready for some big change. And when I say you as a cybersecurity person, you're letting everybody know. You're you're contacting the appropriate roles and if there's no roles you're getting with the organization to establish certain roles like a, a, a there might be a system administration role. There might be a privacy management role that has to be put in place. That's the prepare stage. And then once you've prepared, everybody knows that this um, SP 500 system is going to come on board soon. Um, we've got all of our roles and responsibilities in place. We've got maybe we've pulled up the old documents for the SP 500 system now. We need to categorize it. What does that mean? So categorization is where we're really is security categorization. So what category are we putting this? What level of effort 
what what security level are we putting this system in? That's really what we mean by categorization. Is is it a public server? Is it a, is a web server where we're putting out publicly available information, or is it a is it a classified system that needs a extreme amount of security and and lots of encryption and and actually some of the even the name of the systems is classified. So what categorization do we need to put on that? In there? And there's a bunch of steps to make you to allow you to categorize a system. And all of that's explained in the NIST 837 and the NIST 853 and a couple of other documents. And then once we've categorized the system, we know that the system is a say a high impact system, meaning if it goes down, um, that's gonna it's going to affect our or our mission and business operations. Now we have to select the controls. Controls are based on what level of security a system has. So if it's if it's a high impact system, we're going to have more controls in place. There's going to be things that we're going to do on this system that we might not do on a publicly available uh, web server system. So we've selected the controls, right? Now we have to implement the controls. So implementation of the controls is actually putting the controls in place. Who's going to implement those controls? Now we're getting into what kind of system do we have? Is it a Linux system? Is it a Windows system? You know, so those are the kinds of things that are going to be very, very important when we're actually implementing these these um, these controls. And so from there, we have assessment. We've we've already put the controls in place. We've selected the controls. We've put them in place. Now we have to make sure that those are in place effectively because there might be that we forgot some it might be that we put it in place or we thought we put it in place but it's not effectively in place but we've got to do something else so for that normally you have another team come in and conduct an assessment but you can also do a self-assessment where you run your own scans or you do an ethical hacking on your own system you're like you're kind of um the, the phrase is eating your own dog food like you've created the dog food now you're gonna taste it you're gonna taste test it to see if it's good <laughs> Uh, so another thing is uh, you've assessed it. And by the way, at each part of this process, you are creating documents to to make sure that uh, your everything that you're doing is is has continuity. That's why document is documentation is very, very important to this. A lot of people say that GRC work or policy work or information security work is all paperwork. It seems like that because probably 80 percent of your job is is managing documents because you have and the reason why you need the documents is because especially with larger organizations medium and larger is because continuity right it, everything you do you have to document it because you you might leave you might leave the organization and somebody else has to come in and what do they have there's no documentation they got to start from scratch because you didn't write anything down there's nothing saved there's nothing put in play like what if the system goes down what if it has a hard crash all the data is gone but you have no documentation how to fix the system, no documentation on how to put the system up. So throughout the whole process, you're actually documenting this. And so now we've assessed the system. We have the controls in place. Now we're going to authorize the system. So there's got to be somebody, a head of agency or a somebody who's above everything. And like in the military, you had normally a colonel or a wing commander or something like that or um, somebody in a seat of, of great responsibility. Um, has to take uh, a, has to take responsibility for this system. So they're the person who's going to say, yes, I, I'm going to take full responsibility. I'm going to take the risk for this. I'm signing off saying I'm going to accept the risk for this. And that's the authorization process. 
It's one of the, it's a very important step. I wouldn't say it was the most important step, but it is very important because somebody has to take responsibility for all the things that you, all the risks that are still there. And then another really big step is monitoring. What does monitoring mean? So monitoring means that uh, we're going to continuously watch the system for changes. And if you've been in IT for any amount of time, if you've done anything even remotely close to any, even if you've, if you've, if hell, if you were just a user in, the, in an environment with a lot of computers and you have nothing, you're not touching the system directly, you know that IT changes all the time, constantly. Windows is constantly being updated. Linux is constantly being updated. Apps on your computer, your browser is constantly being updated. There's constantly threats out there. There's constantly, uh, people are constantly finding vulnerabilities on systems. There's just constant changes to IT, to our environments. Systems are coming and going. Systems are being decommissioned. Systems are being added. People, users are coming in. Users are going out. Different types of information are coming in and out. Um, it's just rapidly changing. And as we go further and further into advancements, as we get more and more advanced, it's, it's changing even faster. I mean, it's changing way faster than when I first got in. So continuous monitoring is is the thing that uh, is supposed to uh, manage the risks of that change. It manages the because the only the only constant is change. Right. And um, that's no different in in system engineering. Everything's constantly changing. So continuous monitoring is how we say, OK, um, every week or every month or every every organization has a different uh, different cycles that they have to do. Some are daily cycles, right? Some some cycles are daily. Like if you one thing that might be daily is uh, uh, the the network team monitoring monitoring the the amount the amount of bandwidth that's being used on the network. Another one that's daily is the security operations center. They're watching logs come in and out every day. Actually, every minute of every day, they're watching the data come in and out and watching for incidents like to make to see if anything's happened that's a, that's an anomaly like some kind of something that shouldn't be there they're they're looking for that thing so that's its own cycle but then you've got other larger cycles like changes in the information system like there's an upgrade a major upgrade to the system because we're no longer using windows uh, 2008 so it's a huge upgrade. Now we're going to move to Windows 2012 or 19 or whatever. The servers have to be upgraded. Now we have to do this huge overhaul. That's another thing that you might find in continuous monitoring. So that is GRC is a very broad term. Um, and I only covered one aspect of it. I covered just compliance. That's what I just talked about is mostly compliance. I didn't really cover too much of the of the the governance. But governance is very important to the entire process. Risk, um, a risk part of it is the assessments. So there's a, there's a lot of overlap in the GR, the term GRC. But you kind of get an idea of why there's so much documentation. What's what is GRC in a nutshell? Without somebody just saying cybersecurity, you know, now we're talking about one bit, part of cybersecurity, a very important piece that a lot of people don't talk about. That is GRC in a nutshell, but I can go way deeper into this. If you're very interested in, in knowing more about this, I've got books on this. 
right now, if you look in the link description below, I've got I'm trying I'm looking for a team to help me evaluate some of the books that we're publishing. I've got a team of of other writers that are helping me put out a, a more practical guidance on on uh, compliance, because what I found is even though there's all of these free resources from governments and from industry, sometimes the way they speak is kind of inside baseball. They're using a lot of jargon that's relevant to their to their that's relevant to their industry. That a lot of people, like the government, for example, DOD, even even in specific branches, uses all of these acronyms and all. It's really hard, especially if you're a new person getting into this. Or maybe you worked in the banking sector and now you're trying to get into the government, and they're using all. They're using all this jargon and stuff. So the what I do is I write it in a way that is understandable and practical. I'm saying, look, this is what they mean, and this is how you would use it in this situation. And I'm get straight to the point, and we move on to the next thing. I just wish somebody would have done that for me. So the stuff that we're publishing is that type of thing. We're breaking it down in a way that, look, I know you might be from another industry. You might be completely new to GRC entirely. So I'm going to write it for people who are really trying to do the work, like people like myself who are in the field doing the work, not some academic who needs to do um, a TED talk on it. I'm, I'm talking to people who actually have to do this. I'm talking to the help desk person, the help desk person who just got their security plus and who, who wants to get into GRC. That's the kind of people who are my audience or somebody who's absolutely brand new to this and wants to get into this, but don't understand it. And then they try to read PCI DSS. They try to read ISO 27001. They try to read NIST 800. And they're like, what the what the hell am I reading? Where do I even start? I'm telling you, like, listen, I've been doing this for 20 years. Here's how you do it. Here's where you start. This is what it means. That's the kind of stuff that I'm that we're writing and publishing. So if you're interested in actually reading these, because we need reviews, it's on Amazon. Um, we're gonna put them on other platforms as well. I've got other writers that are helping me out that we're putting it together and in, in, in writing it. So if you're interested in doing reviews for this, link in description. Um, it'll uh, give you a free code to listen to audiobooks. I know a lot of us are driving, commuting, and doing other stuff. And everything you're busy, you might not have time to actually just sit there and read. So I've got a bunch of audiobooks out there that'll give you a free code. You can just listen to it, give me a, a review, you know. And then I'll, if you review often, I'll reach out to you directly and be like, "Hey man, could you? Do, I've got this new book on ISO twenty seven thousand and one that we wrote. Could you go ahead and check this out for free? Here you go. Here's an audiobook. I've got tons of stuff coming down the pipeline into 2024, 2025, 2026 is going to be coming out." All kinds of content. If you're interested in that, join our our readers uh, team, and then I'll send it out. Or you can just join my newsletter. Sometimes I'll send out this kind of, of free codes or free, even just free eBooks. I'll send it out to you, um, and discounts on paperback books as well. So just go ahead and sign up if you're interested in it. I've got a few people who've already jumped on it, and um, I've, if you've been on my newsletter for some time, you already know. I'm sending stuff out to you, but now I'm getting more aggressive about it. Like I'm, I've made it to where it's kind of automated. So you just sign up and then it'll give you a code. I only have a certain amount of codes. I've got about 25 codes for each book that I can give out. And, and some of them are already been taken. So if you're if you're really interested in the first batch of books that we have, we've got NIST 800. We've got uh, uh, NIST CSF. We've got uh, some stuff on how to get into this field. And those are all free uh, audio books and free ebooks and stuff like that for because we're looking for 
uh, reviews right now. So our stars on Amazon because it helps to boost the sales. All right. I'm going to get into some open questions. I'm trying a different format here on TikTok to where you guys can see what we're reading on the screen. I don't know how if this is going to work out, but we'll see. Um, let's see here. Um, I've got a few people jumping on. Larry, how you doing, man? My man Larry is in the house. Uh, let's see. DW says, oh, I was about to say, uh, hopefully uh, you do something for people who don't have IT experience at all. Yeah, I, I do have a couple of book of a, a little bit of content for people who have not done IT at all. I've got a free course on getting into cybersecurity, kind of like where going from going from geek to getting a job in cybersecurity and like kind of the mindset uh, rather than like the I've got if, if you sign up, go to combocourses.com, you'll find a free course where you just go ahead and, and look at that and it'll tell you like, here's kind of what you need to know if you're trying to get into this and you know nothing. Like here's what you need to know if you're already a geek and you already know IT stuff and you but you want to go into cybersecurity. Here's what you need to know if you're in cybersecurity, you've done cybersecurity stuff, but you want to get a role in cybersecurity. It kind of walks you through all the steps. So that's completely free. Um, I want to do a lot more with that, but I just I need more time, right? I, I'm I'm getting wealthy on money and knowledge, but not not so much on time. <laughs> um, so uh, let me see. Oh, other stuff I have for people who are brand new. I've got one. Yeah, actually, I've got one where uh, it's walking you through best security practices. And that's another book, like go to combo courses, go to check it out on Amazon. If you, if you sign up for my book, uh, my book team, you'll see that book in there, but that's, that one's for beginners. I'm not writing it for people who know absolutely. I'm not writing for people who've been in this for a while. Um, they can benefit from it too, especially if you're an IT person, and you don't know like what to put on a resume, that wouldn't be a good one for you. But for you, a person who's straight off the street, who doesn't know anything could read that book. So there's a couple things I have. For people who know who don't know anything, who are coming, who are brand new to this, but all the books I write, I'm not writing it for academia. I'm not writing this for you to wax poetic when you walk into um, a group of IT people. I'm writing this for people who want to have a practical understanding. They're in the job, and they because that was what happened to me. I was kind of like tossed in the fires, and I. And so when I write, I'm writing for people who who are in that situation, who they need to know right now. Like, what do I do right now? What do I do? What tasks do I need to do? My videos are like that. I'm I'm talking about what do you do? I'm giving you practical examples from my own experience. It's it's something you're not going to see with with the more academic type types who are teaching. It's not, and and a lot of folks are not teaching GRC stuff, and. I just wanted to take a practical approach to it, and I'm going to go more in that direction because I, I just feel like that's more useful to people than just, just speaking academically that you can get for free off of uh, Nest 800. You can get all that stuff for free off. I'm trying to give you a practical understanding from a person who's on the inside um, looking out so I can kind of pull people in. Uh, let me see. Okay, let me see here. DW says, um, but you have already covered it saying desk, a help desk and no experience at all. So we're good. Okay. 
Um, Jordan on TikTok says, what is an entry-level role in GRC uh, to get into from help desk? Okay. this These are the kinds of folks that I'm helping, by the way. So people who are, you happen to have done a little bit of help desk. You happen to have done a little bit of um, maybe your role was was customer support technician. And now you're trying to level up and you're trying to get in into GRC more specialized. So there's a couple things that I would recommend you do. So the, it's going to start off with what you already have. And what I mean by that is what you already have is you already have done some cybersecurity. If you already are in help desk, if you already have done customer service, more than likely you've had exposure to help to cybersecurity. You just don't know it. You just don't because a lot of people associate cybersecurity with with hacking and with um, I don't know implementing firewall rules or like real complex stuff, right? That's really in the weeds and super technical. But the thing is, one of the most important things in cybersecurity um, is is documentation. So if you've helped with policy before, if you've helped with a security policy, if you've helped with a procedure in your organization, a procedure to create accounts, a procedure to uh, to do passwords. If you've done any teaching, like a lot of times as a help desk person, you might have to teach a user uh, how to use certain functionality. One of the most important things in an organization, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is educating users. So it in every single best practice standard you see in every most laws, one of the most important security controls that they talk about is uh, it's called awareness training, security awareness training. So if you've done that, you need to put that on your resume. These are things you need to put on your resume. So you are, if you're in, a helpless person who's trying to get in GRC, you've got to put all of the security stuff you've already done and you need to put that in your resume. But we're talking about not implementing firewall stuff, not hacking or pen testing. If you did that, that's great. But there's other things. There's, have you ever worked with a scanning tool? If, have you ever worked, have you ever looked at scanning uh, results and had to analyze it and figure out like what's going on? If, have you ever had to look at logs? Have you had to have, turn logs on? Have, these are all best security practices that you need to put in your resume so that you can be more uh, attractive to somebody who's doing GRC stuff. Now, the juicy stuff with GRC that you need to put on your resume is an understanding of the standards that I talked about in the very beginning of this. Standards meaning NIST 800, uh, NIST CSF, uh, PCI compliance, Sarbanes-Oxley, um, HIPAA. These are all things that they're really actively looking for. If you put that on your resume, I promise you, people are going to be looking out for you. Now, what you now? Let's say, well, Bruce, I I've never done HIPAA before. I mean, I'm not in the I'm not in the healthcare industry. I've never done Sarbanes-Oxley. I don't even know what that is. I've never done NIST 800. I've never done any kind of. There might be a, a standard that I'm missing because there's literally hundreds of them that you have done before. You need to know what that is. Um, more than likely, you've done CIS controls. CI, look it up. CIS V8. You've probably done that before. If so, you could put that on your resume. Another thing is to get yourself knowledgeable of it. If you've if you worked in retail before, if you're an IT person who worked in a retail industry, if you're an IT person who worked in 
I don't know, cybersecurity services, uh, if you've worked in a bank as an IT person, if you were each of one of these are an industry, you've worked in some sort of industry and every industry uses some kind of standard. You need to put that on your resume. You can also just educate yourself on PCI DSS. You can educate yourself on NIST 800 and, and then you can put it on your resume saying that you are you are familiar with it. You know, there's a, probably a better way to word it on your resume, but you could read about it and explain that you're like you need to be familiar with it. I'm not telling you to lie on your resume. What I'm telling you to do is learn it, learn it like you. You'd be surprised once you start learn, once you start reading it and get through all the fluff. You'd be like, I've done this before. I've done stuff that's in PCI DSS uh, to protect credit card information. I've done stuff to in. uh in Sarbanes-Oxley that's protecting uh, the audit logs. I've done things to 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 make sure that antivirus is uploaded. That's with, in accordance with NIST 800. You need to put that stuff on your resume is what I'm trying to tell you. A lot of times when I'm reading people's resume and they say, man, I can't find a job. It's they're not they're not making themselves attractive to that particular demo, that particular group of organizations that they're trying to get into, whether they're trying to get into GRC or they're trying to get into, uh, I don't know, threat intelligence or they're trying to get whatever trying to do, their resume doesn't reflect what they're trying to do. And a lot of times they have that experience. I'm so shocked when people, I'm like, dude, you're trying to be, you're being trying to be a SOC analyst, but you didn't put on here that you review logs. Have you reviewed logs before? He's like, yeah. Have you done scanning before? Yes. Then why didn't you put it on your resume? What kind of scanning tool did you use? Oh, I use Tenable. Um, sometimes we use Qualys. I'm like, uh, you gotta put that on your resume. You gotta, that's what they're looking for. Put it on your resume. So that's how you do it. Like, especially if you've done this before, because they're looking, they're <sighs> so the more hands-on you have, the more attractive you're gonna look to a GRC person. But you gotta put, you've got to make the effort to put GRC specific things that you're, they're looking for. They're looking for standards. Um, you can even put some laws that are pertaining to the industry you worked for. They're looking for people who've written uh, policies, procedures before. They're looking for scan. If you have any kind of scanning, best security practices. And then right in the summary or objectives, you could put looking for a GRC role. You know, looking for if, or maybe you're looking for a SOC analyst role, looking for a SOC analyst role, stuff like that. All right, let me see. Somebody said, how do I get codes? So this person is looking for the free uh, free audio books that I have. So I've got about 25 on each book. I've got 20, 25 for US and 25 for UK, if you happen to be in UK. Um, codes. And the way that you get them is to sign up in the link description below. Go or if you don't see the link description, you can go to combocourses.net. It's going to be right on the top, combocourses.net, and you'll see it right on top. In fact, let me just go ahead and type it in here. Convocourses.net. Go there. If you go to combocourses.net, the top one, you'll sign up for something. Uh, it's called Booksprout. And then you'll uh, it'll feed a code like you'll have a list of books that you can do and then you choose the book you want. It'll feed. A, it should give you a code. If not, 
you can contact me at contact at combocourse.com and we'll resolve it. This is the first time I've done this before, so there might be a, some um, some things, kinks that we need to work out. Let me see. I've got some other questions. Somebody said, uh, um, CBT Focus says, uh, currently been in GRC for the last two years. Control Assurance. For the most part, recently failed the CISA exam by nine points. Do you have any study material and tips for the CISA? I personally don't have the CISA. I have the CISSP, I have the, the, the CGRC, um, and a couple of other certifications. The CISA, by the way, is a great certification. It's a high-level intermediate cybersecurity certification for, I believe, for auditors. Um very, very good certification. Some of my peers have it. My, I've had bosses who've had or supervisors who've had CISA. So, man, just keep taking it. I've failed, I've failed cert certifications before. The last one I failed was, um, uh, man, I failed a vendor certification. Just had to keep taking it until I passed it. <laughs> uh, which, uh, man, which one was that? I think the, there was a Qualys one I had to take. I failed that one. Probably the biggest one that was that was a, a stab in the heart was the the CCNA. I, I I retook that one years ago. I took it before I passed it, and it got way harder. And I took it again, and I failed it. So just keep taking the certification. But tips for the CISA, I don't have it. But one one thing that I do for IT certifications is to take a lot of the questions. Like if you know the core material, of course, you need to go and learn the core material because <clears throat> what I'll do is I'll take notes on it. I'll take a, I'll take like a let's see if I have one. I'll just take like a, a notebook and then I'll take notes on each one of the all the main features of each chapter, of each main domain and all the main things you need to know. Right. And you can't. So the thing about writing is you can't write the whole damn. You can't copy the whole book in there. But you got to focus on the things that are most important. So that's what I do. I focus on the things that are most important and then I study my notes. And so that forces me to focus on the, the things that are the most important and all the other stuff. Just keep it moving. Right. Just focusing on the main thing. It does a couple things when you write it down. It's for me, I'm a tactile learner, like the more hands on I'm doing. The more I'm doing and experiencing, the more I, I remember it. Um, and knowing what type of learner you are is really important. But since I'm writing it down, I'm hitting a couple different senses. I'm hitting tactile or kinesthetic or whatever they're calling it these days. And then audio, audio, um, audio learning it via audio, like because I'll read it back out loud to myself. And then visual. I'm writing it down and sometimes putting like little diagrams in there. And so it's audio, it's visual, and it's it's tactile. And because I'm learning in three different, those three, um, it's I'm absorbing the information better. So that's one thing I'll do and then just study my notes. And then another thing I'll do, a big one, is to just take a ton of practice questions. Like I take right before the test. I'll just take practice questions until I just until my eyes bleed. Like I don't until I don't care if I fail anymore. <laughs> it's like being tortured because I'm just 
reading it over and over and over until I memorize it. And it's just all practice questions, like the types of things that should that might be on that test. And there's a couple places you can go, like uh, Bosan is one that you can go to that has a bunch of practice questions. There was one called Oh, visual certifications. There was they have a bunch of tests that you can take. Um, another one is if you buy if you buy the books normally in the back, the books will have some practice questions. I'll take those. A really good one that's brand new that that's really effective is AI. You can go to ChatGPT or Bard and tell it to generate some questions um, that might be on the CISA. Types of questions for the different sections of the CISA and it will, it will do it. And it's, it's incredible. Like you can even give it, you can actually prompt it to have you to get, do a timed test. You can have it do a multi, a multi question test. You can have, it's crazy. You can have it do an essay question. You can have it. it it's, it's incredible, man. Like, so I would go to an, an AI an, an LLM, like either the best ones right now are ChatGPT version four and Bard. Bard's really has gotten a lot better. Um, so those two I would use as practice questions and just keep on doing that over and over again. So that's what I would, that, that's, that's what I've been doing and it's been working for me. Um, let me see if I got any more questions here on YouTube. LinkedIn. Oh, cool. Nathan says, um, to the RMFers out there, <laughs> first I like that. <laughs> this has a free EMAS training I took last week. Oh man, people ask me about EMAS all the time. That he took this week. Um, you have to have a CAT card, okay? And it's it was really good going through the risk management framework in the context of using EMAS. People ask me about this all the time, by the way. So thank you for this. Um, look up EMAS CBT. It's about two hours and you get a certification for a completion. So thank you so much for that, Nathan. For all you people out there who've been asking me over and over again, if I do EMAS training, I do not I do not have access to EMAS, unfortunately. But it looks like the DISA just put out a EMAS training. You have to have a CAT card, it looks like, or some kind of smart PIV card from... Uh, from the federal government to do it. I might see if I could try to do that, if mine will work. And uh, EMAS training. So great EMAS training out there for you. Uh, let me see here. I skipped some questions here. So let me go to A. A says, um, that would be helpful. I'm a nurse and it has been tough making sense of all the options available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, AI is is talking about what I was talking about. I was talking earlier about how I write the books. So if, if you are interested in this, I've got a ton of free books. You have to sign up for my newsletter or you could sign up for um, a, this. The, the best way is the link that I put in the description below, which is a it's an advanced readers team. Like in, in other words, whenever I have a book, Sometimes I'll before I even release it, I'll release it to this team and say, could you guys check this book out? I, I'm going to need a review once I release this book. But here's an advance on the book or here's an audio book. Now, the way I write the books is a is unique. 
in that I'm writing from an insider's perspective. I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm writing it in a, in a way that is not for just people who are inside of, say, I don't know, the Department of Defense who use all these crazy acronyms. I'm not I'm, I'm writing it for people who are who are not just uh, already inside health department. If if uh, the health care industry, if I write one for HIPAA, I'm going to write write it for people who a cybersecurity person or an IT professional or somebody from the outside coming in who might not have who might not know what all this these jar this jargon is, who might not know these acronyms. I'm writing it in a way that you can understand what the hell we're doing, you're, we're talking about and how you can do it. So that's what's most important for me. Like, how do you do this stuff? Because that's what I wish somebody would have told me when I came in. Tell me how to do it. I'm, I don't need to write a dissertation on it. You don't need to use all these words that are only used by the people in that industry. Um, explain it in a way that I'm coming in from another industry and I need to understand it because most of us are from other industries. Most of us are new to this when we come in, you know, so that's how I write them. And if you're interested in getting free books or discounted books, join my newsletter. I'm giving out free. I'm, I'm giving out those books for free to my newsletter. So I, I'll usually send it out to the newsletter or if you're on the advanced readers team, uh, you can actually just go through. There's a Rolodex of all the free. And I have a limited amount of codes I can give for the audiobooks. So you might want to jump on those before they're gone. Uh, let me see. Larry says, are the books hardback or only audio? So I've got a, a, a paperback. I've got an ebook. I've got an audiobook, And I started doing hardcovers. Um, not every book have a, has a hardcover. On, on Amazon. So as much as possible, I try to do those. Um, I, I wasn't sure if people would be interested in it, but I try to do all those different ones. And I'm and eventually I want to put them on all platforms. I want to put them on um, Apple Books and Google Books. And some of them already are shared out on all these. So as much as possible, I'm going to put them on all platform and in as many uh, formats as possible. Thanks for that question. Uh, let me see here. Got some stuff on. Wow, what the hell? Um, got some stuff on TikTok. Okay, let me see. Other questions. Other questions, comments. Oh, thanks, Larry. I appreciate you, man. So let me see here. I might have some questions on. Let me see if I have some some, some out of questions on both YouTube and TikTok. I might just go ahead and go to YouTube and look at my comments. Can you share some projects? Can you share some projects? Um, I can initiate to my group as a GRC analyst. Okay. Projects that you can initiate. Hmm. For GRC. What part of GRC do you do? Would be my first question. 
what part of GRC? Are you doing scanning, assessors? Are you doing um, policy? Are, it, it would depend on what kind of GRC you're doing and what industry that I would give, uh, that I would recommend. Because GRC is a very broad, it's very, very broad. You have assessors, you have people writing policies, you have managers, technically they're part of GRC, managers like IT managers and stuff. So which one would we be talking about here? How can I do, how can I, how can I learn cybersecurity? I guess that's the question. But before I get to that one, sorry, I'm trying to get distracted because I'm going through all my comments here. <laughs> Getting comments ready. There we go. Got it. Okay. And you said, I'm in retail company. I'm in a retail company and part of our security team, I'm a, comp I'm a compliance analyst. Oh, that's, that's really cool. Retail, huh? So what kind of standard do you guys use? I'm, I'm curious. You guys use PCI DSS? You guys use CIS controls. You guys use NIST CSF. What do you, if I'm just very curious what retail PCI DSS. Oh, cool. Okay. Hmm. PCI DSS, what would you do? So you guys do scanning. Um, you guys do. Uh, so the, the little bit of exposure that I have for PCI DSS, we were doing assessments for PCI DSS uh, for a retail um, organization. <laughs> we were doing I, we. When I say we, I was a part of um, a risk, a risk management team at Verizon, and we would we do all this B two B stuff where we do scanning and we we look at their documentation. And we would do all of this stuff to assess their security. And so for PCI DSS, we had a client that needed needed us to do like QSA type stuff for them. And so we would do assessments and we were looking at, looking through their documents to see if they were up to date. We were looking through to see if they um, had had recent scans and then what was in those scans. So I suppose you could do like scan analysis. You could do, uh, have them for test for like training, maybe what you could do is you could have a scan that you know is messed up. Like you, you know the scan. You, you like have three different scans, right? Three different scans. One one scan is just nothing. Like it's just somebody we ran a scan on on the on a bunch of desktops and it's it's fine. There's no problems, and it's just a bunch of logs. And then one is a denial of service attack. And it's the logs clearly show, like if you know what you're looking at, if you actually read it, you'll see buried in there denial of service attacks. And another one is just some servers or something, just server logs, people logging in and out or whatever. And then give them those three and be like, which one of these has interesting traffic? Which one of these might be an incident? And, and tell me why. That's one thing you could do. Like if you were doing risk analysis, that's what our team used to do a lot. Like they would, they give us like, they give us these like little puzzles to solve. 
among all the team and see who who would do it the fastest, who who would do who uh, had the most accurate one, and then why. And then you'd have them present like the person who got it right. Like, why did you say this? Why did you why did you say that was one that, that I thought was really cool that they would do. Um, man, another one you could do. I don't know if you guys do like Wi-Fi scans. Do you guys do Wi-Fi scans? Another one is 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 to put like a rogue. I don't know if you could do this, get away with something like this, but you could put like a rogue, um, um, a rogue AP, like a rogue right a router that's connected to nothing. It's not actually hacking people, but you put it out there and it's it's doing its thing, and and it looks exactly like let's say it was TJ Maxx or something, and you say underscore tj max you know and and there's tj max wi-fi and then there's underscore tj max and see see if if you're doing wi-fi scans if people would pick up on that rogue system that's trying to steal people's information that's that's one thing you could do i don't know if you are that heavy into scanning but let me see what else could you do what else could you do uh this is something i've never done before would be to have people to have people review a policy that had some some issues with it uh and give an an idea of like what what things to improve in the policy that's one thing you could do um let me see what else could you do i'm in a retail company and part of a security team i'm a compliance analyst what else could you do PCI DSS. Hmm. PCI DSS. Oh, you could, one you could do, you could do, there's different types of, there's different levels of PCI compliance. So you could, I don't know if this would be relevant to you, but one of the things you could do is have three types of, um, point of sale devices. You can have one that's a, P, a point of sale where some where a retailer is taking sales from their house versus somebody who's in actually in a store using a a card reader versus somebody who's taking taking information over the phone and then have them figure out I don't know if this would be relevant to you but ha have them explain what level of PCI compliance would be done in each one. The retailer who's who's um, taking cards over the internet versus one taking calls over the phone with a virtual terminal versus one who's taking the, uh, the PCI card right reader. That's one thing you could do. Another thing you could do, this is my last one, is you could have a network, three networks, have a diagram that has three different networks and you have one network that was correct you'd have one network that's correct like it has i know in pci dss you have to have a, a separation like an air gap between the network that collects the data on the on the point of sale devices so that one's correct like you have a diagram that has a correct it's all good like it's it's separated from the guest um network and everything's good and then another one that's not correct, the whole thing's together. Like you have the guest account and the employee network that's connected to the PCI DSS 
network and all of it's just together like one happy family right you have those two and then you have them uh, hey which one of these is good you know what i mean you could do something <laughs> maybe make it not so obvious you know like that'd be kind of cool that you could do so um let me see how what else what other questions do we have here oh let's go to youtube I haven't been going on YouTube as much, and I apologize for this. I want to do a lot more of this. I just don't have a lot of time. So Larry, my man Larry is on here, and he says, um, if you're already remote with your company or government, you may be able to use that leverage in a bargaining, in bargaining for a full or partial remote with a new position maybe bargain slightly less pay for a full re uh, remote. Um, not guaranteed, but worth the attempt. Yeah, exactly, my man. My man's, he's got the right idea. Exactly. So what he's saying, I, what I'm taking for what he's saying is, and I totally agree with this, if I'm understanding him right, is that if you already have a remote position, what we're talking about is being over, it's called um, overemployed meaning having two jobs at once. And a lot of people are doing this these days because you just make more, way more money doing this. You have one full-time job, you have one part-time job, or some crazy fools have two full-time jobs, which I don't know how they do that. I did it once and it's crazy. You don't ever want to do that. But anyway, so you have two different jobs and you're working both of them and you're making maybe 60 from one and 100 from one. But the thing is, if you already have, if you already have a job and you're making 85, let's say, and you work from home. Think about it. How much more do you really need? Like how much like you can. If you already make 85. I mean, another 20 doing a part time job is 100,000. Another 30 is 110,000. Another 40 is 120,000. You get the idea. You don't need to make another 85,000. That'd be cool if you did. But the thing is, you already work remotely so you don't really need to make a lot on this other job so what do you have to lose if you make another ten thousand working you know 10 hours a week on this other job then that's not bad that's ten thousand you didn't have before you know so great great point and that's something i always think about when when i if i ever do that again is that I don't really need to make a lot this other place. Like I don't right now. I I don't really have time to do it. So I'm not. I'm currently not doing this right now. I mean, I had some stuff in the some irons in the fire, but they kind of fell through. So I'm not doing nothing right now. I'm only doing what we're what you guys are seeing now and my job. So that's it. But I, I agree with Larry on this one. Like he's saying, you you have so much leverage if you already have a part. If you already have a full time job. Now you have leverage to do whatever the hell you want with this other job. You you could take less pay, take more pay. Hell, you could just say, you could just shoot for the moon and be like, I don't care if they don't take me. I'm going to ask for as much as possible. And if they say no, what did I lose? I'm already working. So it's a hell of a leverage to have a, a work from home job and then be looking for another one. I agree with you, Larry. And thanks for this 10 bucks, Larry. I really appreciate you. I'm a program manager for the government, and I have been currently working on projects covering supply chain risk management 
which seems to be uh, of the same or similar family as GRC. So this is part of GRC, Larry. Let me, I'm going to show you uh, something here. Let me see if I can bring this, bring this up here real quick. Um, so if I can find it. So it's supply chain security is part of uh, the security controls that you normally implement. It's super, super important. And it's in every best security practice these days. Like any modern one will have something about supply chain risk management. And I want to show you what, what I mean here. So right now we're looking at NIST 800. NIST, this is NIST 800 right here. And this is just, this is one of them. Let me, I want to see if I can bring up another one. Another family that brings it up is the NIST CSF also talks about it. CSF V1 also talks about this. Um, let me see if I can, if somebody can risk. There it is right there. Boom. That's another one. I want to, I just want to show you something about supply chain. And there's another one. Let me see. I think it's in uh, CIS supply chain, supply chain risk management. I believe the C, uh, the, uh, the uh, CIS group of security controls also brings this up. Yeah, yeah, okay. So this is, this. I think this is a good enough, this is a good enough amount of information. So right here, what you're looking at is the CIS controls. And a lot of organizations use CIS controls. It's used in retail, it's used in the federal government. I've used it a couple times in federal government. I've used it in aerospace. Many different industries use it. It's just a very useful tool. And this originally was created by the SANS organization. Um, SANS, if you didn't know who this was, SANS are the guys who make the, G, uh, the GAIC um, certifications. That would be the GCIA, the GCI, uh, GCA, um, GCIH, and many others, great GPIN, all kinds of incredible certifications that are kind of a staple when you get deeper into cybersecurity. And um, anyway, CIS, they created their own group of controls, which a lot of organizations now use. And they have a whole thing about supply chain security. So it is definitely a part of GRC. Here's another one. This is coming from the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is a recommended standards, not absolutely, you don't have to use this, but it's just to help out any kind of uh, organization who wants to use it. And organizations all over the world use this, it's created by NIST and it's for everyone. And um, so right here you see supply chain risk management, and it's just breaking down all the things you do in supply chain risk management, starting with the first one, which is uh, cyber supply chain risk management uh, processing, uh, processes are identified, established, assessed, managed, and agreed on by the organization. And all, all this is, is just kind of give you a, a general idea of what it is, is that for those who, who don't know, um, 
is a fancy way. Supply chain risk management is a fancy way of addressing organizations using other services and other vendors and making sure that that other vendor or service is secure. A good example of this is software. Most organizations rely on other organizations to give them software, right? Am I right? Like, think about it. Microsoft, Oracle, Linux, Red Hat, Linux. These Your, your organization did not develop Windows. It did not develop Adobe. It did not develop Apache, right? They're relying on these amazing tools to do what they need to do. That said, sometimes what happens is you're relying he so heavily on these other organizations, but if they're supply, they're supplying you with a service or a or a tool or something. If their stuff is not good, if their security is not good, they can get hacked and it can affect you indirectly or sometimes even directly, right? If they don't have their stuff together, then you don't have your stuff together. So supply chain uh, risk means, okay, what is the risk that we have of using this service or this other vendor? Does this other vendor or service have adequate security? Because otherwise we are opening up a huge hole on us. That's all supply chain risk management is. It's making sure that that other organization, and this is why some organizations freak out if you happen to use open source uh, technologies or something that's not tested or something that's uh, uh, freeware is a good example of it. Like freeware, sometimes you get these awesome tools that some, some dude in their basement created and they just put it out there but it doesn't have any support. It's just something they did in their free time. They put it out there and people start using it. Governments start using it. You know, retail organizations start using it. But it doesn't have any. And then it gets hacked. And guess what? It's There's 100 instances of it on your network. And now there's an exploit of this of this tool that, you, that you're using. But you didn't do enough. You didn't assess the tool. You didn't know that. You, you didn't assess whether or not they actually back it up or you don't have, you didn't assess whether or not they have vulnerabilities. You didn't assess whether or not they, they update it from time to time. Does it have support? Like you didn't look into that. So that's a problem. So that's why it's in the CIS controls. It's in NIST 800. It's in the uh, CSF. Supply chain risk is super, super important. Now, here's another place that you see is it's really in most most standards will have it. And so here it is in the NIST 800. And NIST 800 has it. And it's called the SR controls, supply chain risk management. There it is right there. It's just making sure you have a procedure for it, making sure that um, in that procedure and those policies, you're addressing like a plan to make sure that the organization is, is legit, making sure that they, that what, what kind of security do they have? We didn't just we didn't just buy something from Best Buy and hope for the best. We have a maybe an approved list of places to go to that's already vetted by our team, stuff like that. So that's what that is. Thanks for bringing that up, Larry. I really appreciate that. That's definitely a part of GRC. It's a huge part of GRC, one of the many controls that we have out there. So let me see here. I've got some other questions here, some other people jumping on here. 
Ooh, this is a good one that I get often. Cloud computing or cybersecurity. I would argue that it depends on what you want to do. Both of these are very good. Both of these are very, very hot. Cloud computing. Um, I talk about this a lot, but the last time, like maybe last year, um, last year I was going for another job and out of five interviews, four people asked me about cloud computing. And I, I'm not a cloud guy, so I, I know very little about it. I know like about FISMA. Um, um, I mean, FedRAMP. FedRAMP is the process of, of um, assessing cloud systems for the federal government. I know about that. But as far as the actual technology, I don't have a lot of hands-on experience with it. Is it? Do I use it? All of us use it. I mean, have you ever used Netflix? It's using cloud technology. <laughs> All of us are using net, uh, cloud technology. So, but do I know like how to implement it, or you know, do I know how to use AWS and implement a client on? No, I, I have not done that. So, cloud computing or cybersecurity it depends on what you want to do. Uh, if you want a lot of hands-on. Probably cloud computing. Um, cybersecurity is very it's pretty specialized. And normally they're looking for somebody who already has at least IT experience. So hmm, if you're coming straight out of school, you probably want to do both, to be honest with you. You know, and uh, because what you could do is you could go. Actually, let me just show you. So check this out. So cloud computing, let's show you one of them. AWS Cloud Practitioner. That's what the first certification is called. Track. So what I want to show you is the types of the types of um, certifications that you can get. And I would, hell, if, if you are trying to figure out which one to do, just do, why don't you just do both? Check this out. So here you go right here. Let me see, show the screen here real quick. So right here, you have different cloud certifications. You see this right here? I don't know if you guys can, I don't know if you can see this, but these are different cloud certifications. And this is from AWS, by the way. AWS, why, why I mentioned in this one is because they have the biggest market share. Um, not to say, you know, you should definitely do AWS, but this is probably one of the top ones. It starts off at the bottom here with Cloud um, Practitioner. Uh, some people can't see it. Let me see if I can readjust this. Um, yeah, I hope you can see this. So the bottom one here is Cloud Practitioner, and that's the basic one. It's like 100 I don't know, 60 question test or something. It's pretty cheap. It's like 100 bucks, 85 bucks or something like that. From here, you have a foundation and then you can go to architect, operations, or developer. And then from here, you've got, uh, so you've got tiers, right? And then over here, let me see if I can find the security one. There's one that focuses on security after you have done these. I'm trying to find a security-based one. Some of y'all already know what I'm talking about. Maybe this is it. This roadmap right here. Uh, let me see. I'm looking for a good diagram that's going to explain it. It's going to break it down quickly. I had one before, and now I'm struggling to find, find it. Um, let me see. 
There's an AWS certification that is focused on security. And this is, this one is really good because you get the best of both worlds. I mean, you get to learn cloud and you get to specialize in security. Okay, here, here's one right here. Um, you got to do this one first, right? And then you can do the security cert and then there's a level above that. But why not do both is what I'm saying. Why not specialize, do cloud and then specialize in security? That's, I mean, it's just an option, right? Especially if you happen to be a student, you have the time, money and energy to do this. So why not do both? Why not learn both? It's going to take you longer to do it, but you know, that's, that's what I would recommend you do. Okay. Let me see. My man, Larry's here. He says, uh, but on top of my salary, okay, I think I missed something here. I think I missed conversation here. Um, Larry says, I bridge the gap between the policy side and the development side of the house. I have a background in information assurance, and it makes me feel like I should continue to strengthen and build my knowledge base. Yeah, um, that's that. I would say so. Continue to build that because it's definitely. Definitely worth some money. Uh, let me see. Build your security side. Okay. For those that are um, maybe unsure, there are many paths to find success, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you, Larry. Uh, I work in the government, and I'm currently just shy of six figures. I am a vet, so with my VA disability, uh, I clear it. Yeah. That's that's awesome. My man's my man's <laughs> doing it right. Um, so in less than a year's time, I participate by I, I anticipate my base salary to be over six figures. And I say that to say you can 100 percent make more money working for Google um, Amazon, etc. And not only that, like I would go I would venture to say. You don't even need to work for these major companies. You don't even need to work for Fang to make six figures. You you can do it. I'm I don't work for Fang, but I mean I use their products, but you know to get where I'm at. But I don't work. I've never worked for Fang actually. Um, and I I'm doing I'm doing pretty damn good, guys. <laughs> I mean money wise, I'm doing pretty damn good. You know, so. Uh, it's like, it's like Larry's saying, like Larry's kind of a triple threat. That's why you'll notice like a lot of folks who, who are making the big bucks are a triple threat. Like they, meaning they're skilled in several things. Larry has a background in information assurance. And then also he's a, a project manager. Either one of those things can make him six figures. Project management can make him six figures by itself. And then information assurance can make it six, him six figures. And um, usually that's how this is how it how it is. And you, you'll have multiple discipline and, and most security guys are like this. They have multiple disciplines that they've gotten good at and they know a lot about a lot of things. And they're they're skilled in either one or a couple things, like really, really skilled in one or, or two things. And that's why I say, like, once if you're a help desk person. And you feel like you're trapped on the help desk and you're trying to level up. You're actually in a great position because from here, from there, 
you already know the basics of IT that a lot of us don't, that a lot of people coming in don't. Um, that said, you just got to position yourself to start to specialize in, in something else. You already have specialized and sharpened your skill set in, in basic information technology. And now you need to say, OK, I'm going to do cloud. I'm going to do I'm going to do security policy. I'm going to do information assurance. I'm going to do network engineering. I'm going to do pen testing. You choose a path and then go that route. Whether it's cloud or pen testing or documentation and just learn as much as you can about it. And I would argue get a certification in there to kind of validate your knowledge and then put that shit on your resume. And then see what happens. Uh, let me see. Anthony Sutherland says, when using freeware, what security should I watch for? This is a good question. Should I lock down the freeware that's, that securities need to be applied for freeware? To free, what securities need to be applied to freeware? So let's look at the vulnerabilities of freeware. The main vulnerability usually with freeware is it's unsupported, meaning it's not supported by any. A lot of times. The organization. Is not. Hold on. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, a lot of times the organization, it, there's. The organization that's creating the freeware is not supporting it on a regular basis. There are some exceptions, but that's really the main problem with freeware is, is support. So um, that's one. Um, another thing is, uh, well, I mean, that's the, big, the main thing because that's patching. Um, that's if threats come in to play. Like, look at, look at Microsoft. Look at um, Internet Explorer. The problem is it's targeted. Right. It has a huge target on its back. So all these people are finding new exploits for it. And the Microsoft is constantly having to update it with patches. And it's like a boat with a bunch of holes in it. And they're constantly patching. But freeware doesn't have the luxury of having those patches. So it's unsupported. And that's the main problem, really, with it. So how do you secure that? So a lot of organizations that I've worked with, they, they do it in a couple ways. The, the first one would be just don't allow it. Um, that'd be the most obvious one. Don't allow it. Um, the other one and the most likely one would be uh, to have a, a software list, either a whitelist or a blacklist. A whitelist meaning we only allow this list of or of of software we only allow this if it's not on this whitelist we don't allow it it has to be approved with a process and then you have a blacklist you can either have a you can have either or it depends on how you want to do it right whitelist is easier to maintain but it depends on the organization really so a blacklist is like okay we allow everything except for these things so obviously a whitelist would be better um, for security it's better to say, here's our list. And if you want approval, you have to be 
you have to go through a, an approval process. The process of approval for that freeware or for whatever software that's being intro, introduced to the environment is the most is is key. And here's why. They have to have a justification for having that freeware on there. Um, and then another thing is that it's now documented because they've documented that this freeware is what we want and here's why we want it. And we're going to we need it for. And you, some people, even some organizations even have a time limit. We want it for 365 days. And then after that, we have to re re up on it, whatever. Right. So it does a couple things. Number one, it's documented. Number two, it gives a justification of why they're using this instead of the one that's supported. Um, maybe there's no other alternative and they have to use it for business purposes, whatever the justification is, right? Then you can monitor it because it's documented. So that's probably the main thing is to doc to monitor that particular software just like you do everything else. So now you've kind of taken up on yourself to, to make sure that the organization is on top of the security and update of that freeware. So if there's a new vulnerability, if there's a new version of it, you guys are out there looking for uh, the update for it. A good example of this that most many organizations did, and there's, there's actually many, many cases of this because there's so much great freeware out there. Um, one of them at one time, I don't know if this is still the case, but there's one called 7-Zip <clears throat> and it was free for a long time. It's just a great application. So everybody was using it and it was free. You just grab it and, and everyone was using it. What we did, a couple of organizations, what we did was number one, we documented it. We had a process that anybody who wanted to use this, we documented it. We knew which systems it was on. We knew, we knew uh, what version it was on. And we tracked it. Like if there was a new version that needed to come out, we went to the site, updated it, and put it throughout the environment on for anybody who needed it. And then anybody who wanted who needed that, we had a justification. It's already documented in our whitelist of, of software. Somebody could come and get it. So to secure freeware or any other unsupported software, what we would do, um, what you want to do is document it, monitor it. And control it, control it in the environment. What you don't want to do <laughs> is just allow anyone to download whatever freeware and open source software that they want and put it wherever they want because um, you're not going to be able to manage it. It's just going to be everywhere. You're not going to know what the hell it is, right? You're going to be going through your software inventory or do your scans and say, what the hell is Mike source 15? <laughs> what is this? And what is, what is a uh, finger DOS 15? Like what, what is, you're going to be scrolling through and you're not going to know what the hell. And then sometimes this freeware is, it's uh, reaching out to a server somewhere and you're like, what the hell is this traffic? What's, what's going on? And then it's all over your your network, and you're like, "Is this a is this virus? Is this a virus? What is it? You won't know what it is because you didn't document it. You're not tracking it, and you just allow anybody to just go ahead and download it. So document it, control it, track it, 
that's pretty much all you can really do because you the vendor is kind of hit or miss. Like they might update it sometimes and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're sometimes freeware is really good. The best software is actually either free or open source. Let's be real. Like most of the best stuff, Linux came from that environment. Um, hell, name something. Most of the best stuff out there came from free open source. That whole thing, that whole movement is incredible. So it's the best stuff. I'm not saying don't ever use it unless you're in a real strict environment. Sometimes you, you shouldn't. I would say places where that shouldn't use it, probably Intel. In, like if you have a very secure network, um, you should you just shouldn't use it. There's some cases where you just should not use it, you know. And, and if you do, you need to have very 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 tight controls. The DO, that's what how the DoD does it. They you they do allow it, but there's a process to allow it. You have to have a real good justification of not using the stuff that's already been approved. If you have an if they have an alternative typically they're they're very strict and they say look no one can use it. and when they find it they're going to get rid of it um they're going to ask you what who downloaded it and why and stuff so um there's cases where you shouldn't have it and then but every case you should always control it as much as possible so i hope that helps and that's just based off of all the places i've been to that's just how how they they've handled it all right, let me see if I have any other stuff going on. We've been talking for about an hour and 25 minutes, and I want to see if there's any other questions on um, YouTube. Um, let me see. Thanks, Larry, for that. I appreciate you, man. Let me see. Oh, here's here's a good one. <laughs> somebody said, um, somebody said, um, okay, they were responding to one of my videos where I was talking about how is a cybersecurity, how is cybersecurity as a career, and I was talking about how much money you can make and stuff like that, and said, and somebody said, yeah, cybersecurity, whatever, but. Uh, can you reach 500,000 in it without being a CISO um, and only a GRC consultant? And then somebody said, there's a conversation going on. And they said, are you worth 500,000? Got to be realistic. If you make six figures um, alone, anything over 120,000, that's pretty good. It's a pretty good life. It's, and then somebody else said, it's normally in IT or cyber, you're going to make about 100 to 200,000, sometimes more. I'm asking to know the ceiling if it's possible that you can make that you can reach that amount. Um, OK, so he's not being facetious. He's just he's just trying to say, OK, what is the level here? What are we talking about? How much money are we talking? OK. I can answer this one. I mean, I'll just give my two cents. I don't know how accurate it is. This is just my my experience. But I would say the person talking about the the range of a hundred to two hundred thousand is about right. That's usually the cap is around uh the cap is around two hundred, I would say, unless you're like a a C-level exec or something like that, right? A CISO or something like that. They, they make crazy money sometimes, depending on the organization. But 
that's that's not to say that people aren't making five hundred thousand, uh, three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand, or something like that. Especially if you're overemployed, where you have two or multiple six-figure jobs. Um, now, if you're trying to make, I would I would argue this. The cap is around two hundred thousand usually, right? There are some freaks out there who are making way more than that with one job. That's true. It's true. Um, and who are these people? That's usually Fang people working in like New York or something like that. And they're doing like high level work for Google or some, you know, they're they're doing they're working directly on Google search algorithm. Those guys make ridiculous money. Those that cap is crazy. Right. They got all kind of stocks. That, so those guys are making four hundred thousand, three hundred like crazy money. Right. So I'm not talking about them. They're an exception to, to most rules. And you see them on people are just their greed glands are salivating when they hear those kind of numbers. But that's just not. Those are outside of the norms. Right. That's why I don't talk about those kind of numbers, because that's not normal. It's not what I've been doing this 20 years. I've never seen no money like that. And most of the people I know have been doing this as long as I have, and they haven't seen money like that. That's not to say people haven't, but it's just rare. That's like a three, four 4% people make that kind of crazy dough. It does happen. It's just rare. And it's usually fang people who are high level uh, IT people or something like that, who are making over like three, four, 500, that, that kind of money. Um, anybody making 200, 300, and those kind of crazy numbers like that, um, there's a couple I've heard about making 200 on the East Coast. Uh, I don't know at, with a with a with a TS clearance. Uh, they have they're in a great company with a bunch of stocks and stuff like that, or they're working for Fang or something. I would say the upper limit is around 200. To be honest with you. Um, and anybody else is kind of freaks of nature. It just doesn't happen very often. If you're trying to make 500,000, like what if you are trying to make a 500 or a million or something like that? Then you need to think about, you need to think way outside the box. You need to be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs, they don't have a cap on what they're doing. So the folks on influencers or business people or people like that who are they're entrepreneurs starting businesses and they're making four or five hundred thousand or a million a year because they have a business that are, they're supplying some sort of demand on some other level. They're not just working a job. So it's not saying it's impossible. You could totally do it. But all the people who are saying those kind of crazy numbers, normally they're entrepreneur. Uh they're they're selling a product or they're just selling a service. They're doing B2B, something like that, right? They're way outside of the box of what we're talking about. So somebody said overtime can make you can can get you there if you're hourly paid. True. Like if you're overemployed, um overemployed, um you can you could probably get to three hundred thousand, uh, and then over time, there's there. I'm sure, like if you 
if you're making $80 an hour, right, you got some overtime, maybe you travel, you could probably, you can get in the ballpark of, of 300, you know, you could probably get there, you know, working those crazy hours and some overtime and stuff. Yeah, you could, you could totally get there. But the average, I would say the upper limit is around 200. And, and then getting into management, mid 200s, like if you're doing like man upper level management mid 200s i could be wrong i don't i'm just talking about my experience of what i've seen so yeah 500,000 that's that's crazy talk <laughs> that's cra unless you're a business person you you're selling you've got a a book that that's a, a dozen books that are making our best sellers you've got <clears throat> you're you're doing b2b or maybe you go to sam.gov and you got a couple of contracts you could easily hit a million doing that shit. Um, can doing consulting and you're doing direct B2B, you can easily hit a million doing that that kind of stuff right there. So yeah, so that I just I'm just being realistic about it, you know. Um, let me see. That was a great conversation. I really like this one. Um, I might touch on that one again with a little bit more facts behind me at some point. I just wanted to, to talk about that one. Uh, let me see. I'm looking for more comments. Thank you guys for all your comments, by the way. If you guys are joining me late, um, I just want to tell you again, if you're looking for free audiobooks, you can join my advanced readers group. Link in description. Uh, go ahead and check it out. Free to sign up to get free books while supplies last on those audiobooks because they only give me like 25 codes a book, but I've got all kinds of books. I've got books on what the stuff I talked about in the beginning, which is NIST uh, CSF, CSF stuff. I've got NIST 800 stuff. Um, I've got more stuff coming. I've got HIPAA books coming. I've got ISO 27001 book, uh, books coming. I'm a publisher. I work with other cybersecurity people. We put books together. We write it in a way that is consumable to people who are doing the work. So that's what our focus is on combo courses. That's that's where our bread and butter is right there. If you're interested in getting those those downloadables, um, join the, the book club. Let me see. Somebody said, uh, is there a way to get FedRAMP experience without working for a defense contractor or government jobs? You know, Miss C., I don't think that there is. I could be wrong. Very good possibility that I'm very, very wrong. But I don't. That's a great question. And I don't think so. And the reason why is because FedRAMP is specifically for doing um, NIST 800 on cl cloud that's being used by the federal government. And anytime I've done FedRAMP, it was for the federal government. There's been a, a few times, and each time it was for the federal federal government. Three-letter agencies. I did it for NASA at one point. And that's I, – I, when I worked in the private sector, they had no use for – they were not using FedRAMP. They knew what it was, but we were, we were doing B2B for straight – private sector stuff so they just didn't need it so 
Um, I don't think that you can get the experience outside of the federal government or the contracting space because nobody else is using it but but the federal government, the U.S. federal government, by the way. So. That said, how would you get experience outside? How would you get the experience? One thing you can do, there's a couple things you can do, is if you have experience with cloud, they're looking for you. The FedRAMP, the guys who would do FedRAMP are looking for you. So if you have cloud experience, that could help you towards getting a job with FedRAMP. If you have experience with NIST 800, I've gotten hired a couple times doing FedRAMP because I I know NIST 800 I, and my experience is in NIST 800 and NIST Risk Management Framework, so they would pull me in because that's all FedRAMP is. It's still it's a it's a marriage between those two things, NIST 800 and cloud technologies. So if you if you are mastered one of the two of those things, then FedRAMP will. People who do FedRAMP will be like, oh, this person is a an AWS certified person. They they might know some of the stuff. They they could look at the logs. They could help us to develop, um, get through this FedRAMP process to make sure that the AC controls or the CS control or the SC controls or the IA controls or whatever security controls we need to do are good because they're going to understand how to do, how to, how to secure a, a a cloud-based system. I hope that that makes sense. I'm just telling you from my experience, like anytime I've done FedRAMP, it was for a federal organization and the people who they pulled in was people like myself who were NIST nerds and then people who were uh, who were cloud people who knew how to secure a cloud system. It's, it's a marriage between those two things. So um, let me see. Uh, let me see. Caltech says he's talking about every. Let me show you guys my screen here. He's talking. He gave me a comment on every ISO needs to know this. Okay, that this is one of my best videos, by the way. And in that video, I was just saying one of the things I didn't know as an ISO is that is how important communication is and um, how to communicate with different levels of the organization and kind of seeing things from a big picture as an, as an ISO. He says, thank you for this. I work with DOD as an ISO network specialist. Uh, I've been in the field for two years. I'm just starting to learn risk management framework now, and it wasn't required in my previous position. This, uh, this is the kind of person who I'm, I'm reaching out to because because that that's that was the same thing that happened to me. Like I was I was in a position where I was I was a do I was an IT person and they kind of pulled me in. I was baptized by fire. They just threw me in with the lions and said, "Hey, we need a a system security authorization agreement," is what they call it, which is another name for a system security plan. And no, they, they had no template for it. They had no idea. Nobody there knew how to do it. They just needed, all they knew is they needed an ISO and they needed to do a, a they needed to do documentation on the system. And so they kind of pushed me in there 
And um, and I did it. And I had no idea how to do it. I just read the I was reading. I was reading federal documents to figure out how to do it and then reading the policy on how to do it. And I figured it out and then made a template and said, hey, here it is right here. And they were like, did you do this? I said, yeah. I said, they were like, can we keep this template? I said, sure. <laughs> so they kept, I created a template based off the, the federal guidelines. This was years ago when they were doing, I don't know if you did cap. I don't know if anybody even knows what that is anymore. But yeah, I put the template together, gave it to them. And then the assessor was like blown away. And they were like, can we use this? And I said, yeah, sure. Um, okay, I got a question. Let me see. Somebody said, do any vendors such as cyber cyberary have any materials for learning FedRAMP? Man, oh, that's a good question. Um, not that I've seen. They might, cyberary might have it. Who else might have it? Udemy might have one. I've been thinking about doing one. A couple of people have asked me to do one. But I Pluralsight. Pluralsight might have one. Pluralsight has really good stuff. So AI Auditor says that Pluralsight has a FedRAMP learning. They might have they might have one. Pluralsight has some really good stuff. They do have it, but it's not detailed. Oh, okay. So Pluralsight has a really good risk management framework one. They have the pretty decent. I mean, it's not as good as mine, but it's okay. <laughs> um, I have access. I'll take a look at it. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. I'm trying to look for other. I'll do a couple more comments here, and then I'm going to call it a day. Hey, question. Somebody said, um, let me share my this question with you guys. You guys have any questions about any part of this, this is the time to ask before I close this thing out. Um, Austin says, hey, question. I just bought the risk management framework course. If I showed up on the first day, I want to pull, put myself sort of, and they want to see from an auditor perspective uh, to help secure my own stuff. Would I determine what other controls, how would I determine what other controls need to be used? Um, is it just Nessus scanning and seeing what's missing? This was 11 days ago. I need to answer this one. Um, if this, well, okay, let me see. What's the question again? Man, this is, I need to answer this one for its own question. Okay. So I, if I understand the question, they're asking, how would you know what questions? Okay. How would I know, how would I determine what other controls need to be used? Okay, okay, I can answer this one. Okay, so how do you determine what controls need to be used is based off of the impact level of the system. If, if we're talking about risk management framework, then it's based off of what is the impact level of the system. So if you get to an organization, you get to an organization, and um, 
you're trying to figure out what controls are supposed to be used. What can give you that inf an indication of that will be the impact level. And when I say impact levels, there's three. There's a low impact level, there's a moderate impact level, and there's a high impact level. Now, there's other things to, to consider, like the tailoring of controls. That's other controls that are industry specific or organization added. Sometimes organizations can have their own controls that they create and put them in there. I've seen that before. You can have controls that are not required, even though it's a medium. They they don't require certain ones in there because it's just not relevant. Like there might be an organization that doesn't have any wireless whatsoever because it's not allowed. And so, of course, the wireless controls wouldn't be you tailor those out. You take those you cut those out of your you would need them because you don't have, you know, so you don't have wireless. So why would you need a wireless, you know? Or another one would be uh, remote. Like if you have zero, it's air, it's air gap. It's its own system. It's not connected to any other network. It's maybe it's ten systems that are in a lab that are not connected to anything else, and there's no remote capabilities at all. So you wouldn't need controls regarding remote because it's 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 not applicable because there's no access to this internal lab that you have in these ten systems on. So. How would you know, like just walking in off the street, if you have a NIST 800 system, is what is the level of what is the what is the impact level? Is it a low, a moderate, and a and a, or a high? And if you go to the NIST 853, it has a baseline of controls that are low, moderate, or high. And you can also find it on this site right here. It'll look a little something like. Let me see if I can show you the best way I can. Best thing I could do is just show you what exactly what I'm talking about. So if you go to see if they still have it out there. See if we still. Yep. Here it is right here. OK, check this out. So if let's say you were looking at AC controls, how would we know which controls to use if you just walked in off the street on a system? Here's how you would know. Here, the AC controls are dealing with. Oh, let me show my screen here. AC controls are dealing with access control, access control policies, access enforcement, separation of duties, least privilege. How do you know? So if it's a low system, a low impact system, um, low impact systems, moderate impact systems and high all need to have a security, a policy that addresses access controls. Everyone has to have this. There's no exceptions. There's no excuse for not having it. And then, but there are some controls that you don't need. Let me show you one that does, you don't necessarily need it for every situation. Um, and here one is, let's see, concurrent, this one right here, concurrent session control. So I believe that's like, um, you don't want multiple people logging in at once, right? And, and so it, in a low and moderate, you don't really need to, that's not necessary for that. You don't need to care about that. Low and moderate impact systems don't necessarily need that. But a high impact system where you're very, very concerned who is actually accessing that very classified data. Yeah, you want to know who's logged in, who, how many people at once were logged in. Did a person have two different accounts logged in at the same time? When were they logged in? You're going to be very, very curious about 
when and who and, and why they're logged in. And so this breaks down that whole thing a little bit further. But this is how you would know. And all of this is detailed in the NIST 853 set of controls. They, have a, they tell you exactly what controls based off of what is the impact level of that particular system. So that's how you would know uh, if you were just walking in and off the street on a system. Now, there's other things to keep in mind because different organizations, they might apply some high controls to a moderate system for what for their own reasons and they'll have a justification of why they do that so the where you go to find that kind of thing out is probably the system security plan once you get into the organization and the system security plan is going to tell you what is whether it's a low a moderate or a high impact system and then it's going to tell you okay we've tailored these controls out because we don't need them we don't use wireless here um, we, we don't care about concurrent uh, people, concurrent sessions of people being logged in. We, for, and this is why we don't care about it. So that system security plan is going to tell you everything you need to know. Now, if you're doing this from scratch, you don't have, you come in, you don't know what the impact level of the system is. You don't have a system security plan. You're, it's, it's a new system that's kind of a different situation and you're kind of going to be one of the first ones to know. The thing is, you're not going to be the one to tell the organization what the impact level is. You're going to make a recommendation based off of the information, based off of what's going on. But ultimately, it's the organ, the head of agency and his office or her office that determines, yay, verily, this system shall be a moderate impact system. And here's why. They're the ones who make the deter the final determination on whether it's a low, a moderate, or a high impact system. You, they're going to listen. To, well, hopefully, they're going to listen to your recommendation if you have any. But they're the ones who who say it's this. This is what we're going to have. So, I hope that helps with that question. All right, got a couple of conversations going on on TikTok. What advice would you give to a GRC prospect um, coming from the Salesforce realm as a Salesforce admin? What advice would you give a GRC prospect? Somebody who wants to get into GRC, but they're a Salesforce admin. Hmm. First of all, let me see what is what does a Salesforce admin do? Salesforce. Is that, let me see, Salesforce administrator. Is that like a cloud administrator? The Salesforce administrator typically work with the company stakeholders to, to customize the platform, support, so you know about the services and you would, you would come in and say, okay, client, you guys need X, Y, and Z. You guys should do you guys should have this plugin for Salesforce. Support users within the company and forge a connection between the business and technology. So you're like a salesperson. You're like a you come in, you know the product and the service, and you say, "Okay, here's no. Okay, what is it then? <laughs> what is a sell? What would you do? Like just in one sentence, what what do you? What I can I can give you a recommendation based off of where you're at." 
I can give you a better recommendation based off of where you're at. Is it more technical? Is it more sales? Is it more what like what do you actually what do you actually do as a Salesforce admin? We can figure the system on the back end to support users, including privacy, automations, etc. Hmm. Okay. So I would, okay, so do you have experience doing uh, creating, doing access controls? Do you have, let me, let me show you something here. Look at my screen. Let me see if you can, here's what I would recommend. Let me show you. <clears throat> so this right here, what you're looking at is the control families for the NIST 800. I'm going to explain why this is important in a second here. Um, yeah, we deal with permissions and access. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So that means you've dealt with a lot of this stuff here on this list and that's good news. So, so look at this. If you have access, if you've done a lot of these things before, then you have a quite a bit of, of, uh, experience doing, um, doing GRC type work or at least touch on the perimeters of GRC type work, because this right here is a GRC standard, which you're looking at here. This is NIST 800. There's many different GRC standards, and this is just one of them, but all of them kind of cover the same ground. Now, what you want to do is word your resume in such a way that the people who you are trying to get the job from understand your background in the context of GRC. Let me explain what I'm talking about here. So you said you have uh, you deal with permissions and access a lot. Great. Check this out. This control right here, access controls, they want to know that you have this experience. You just need to word it properly. So they want to know that you if you have exposure to access policies, which I think you do, because if if not, if you haven't written them, you've definitely applied them. So you need to explain that. You have access control experience. You have access account management experience. You have access enforcement experience. These are the kinds, you know what support uh, separation of duties are. You know what least privileges are. You know, so these are the things you need to put on your resume. Um, the way you want to word it, let me, let me, let me give you a demonstration how you want to word this, how you can find this for yourself. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to LinkedIn. Check this out. So here I am. This is my LinkedIn page right here. And I'm, I'm live on LinkedIn. <laughs> but uh, this is LinkedIn, right? So what you want to do, check this out. You go GRC. GRC. I'm just going to type in GRC. Now, GRC is a very broad term. And uh, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. But here's all the jobs. Now, we can look at jobs, but what you want to know is how to word it on your resume. So let's go to people. So here we are on people. and Check this out. Now, what we want to do is look for somebody who is putting their entire resume out there. These are GRC, GRC analysts, specialists, you name it. So let's just take a look at the top 10 people. Some of these guys are going to put their entire resume on here. And these guys are godsend because this is going to give you an idea of what to put on your 
resume. Check this out. Look what they're putting on the resume. We deal with permissions and access allow. Okay. Um, so look at this. Look what he's putting on his resume. Ensure that security assessment authorization process follows the NIST 853. Uh, what else does he do? Create requirement traceability matrix. If you know what any of this stuff means, you need to put this on your right. You need to use this type of language on your resume. See how he has all these. This right here. Look at this. Identity access management evaluation. You've done this, right? You need to put this on your resume. There's a reason why this guy is on the top search for all GRC. It's because he did his resume right. He's the top search for GRC. This is where you want to be. So you want to copy the wording that he's using. Look at the keywords. He's got Sarbanes-Oxley. He's got NIST 800. He's This is all GRC stuff. Um, and that's why this, this guy, this man, is number one on... Um, I'm like, you need to copy what this person's doing. I'm not telling you to lie. I'm telling you to make your resume have the key, the act, the keywords that you need. You've done a lot of this stuff before because you were a Salesforce administrator who did who configured the back end of systems and you've done access controls and things like that. So here's another one. You want to look at, okay, so this person has. You're going to find a lot like this who they don't put, they're not putting their stuff out there. So we're going to go to the next one. Aaron, let's go to Aaron's. Look at Aaron's. So Aaron's also not putting a lot of stuff out there. But you can even look at the roles. Look at the roles that he's putting in here. GRC, GRC. You might have experience. You get the idea, right? You want to tailor your resume to look for people who are looking for GRC positions. Now, one thing you need to know is most people don't call it GRC. A lot of them don't call it GRC. A lot don't. Okay. So a lot of times they're going to call it the standard that they're using. An example would be PCI DSS. If you have exposure to PCI, and I don't know if you do or not, but one of these standards you have exposure to, PCI DSS, you probably want to look for people with that experience in do the same thing. Look at their resume and see how they word it. Another standard, a GRC standard would be NIST 800. If you have any kind of exposure to what this is, if you know another one is HIPAA. If you had a client, a Salesforce client that you guys had to set up um, access controls for um, a healthcare um, organization, you might have had some exposure to the HIPAA GRC standard. You might also have one for, hmm, what's another one? NIST CS, CSF. That's one. Uh, another one is NIST CIS, or not C, NIST CIS, CIS controls, V8 or V7. Let me see if that one's, I don't know if that one's going to be. So the idea is to find, you can use GRC. You can definitely use that, but a lot of them are going to be, they're going to use the standard that, that was relevant to whatever industry that they were in. So think of, so auditor, look at the, look at the industry that you worked for as a, as a service, um, a Salesforce admin and look at what 
is the best security practices that they use in that industry and use that. Whether it was the healthcare, whether it was banking, was it whether it was retail, whether it was government, use the standard. You can also just use GRC as well. You just want to collect as many keywords as possible and put those into your into your um, resume. If, you know, if you still need some guidance on it, you can download my resume for free. My resume, just go to combocourses.com and then you can there's a free have free access to my resume, my real resume. Now, I recently updated it. It's on LinkedIn or whatever, but you can access it. It's going to give you the format of my resume, how I broke it down, what kind of wording I'm using. And you'll notice that I'm using NIST 800 because that's what my that's where I'm at in GRC. So that's the kind of stuff that you want to put in your resume. What you're trying to do is make yourself look attractive to GRC organization. He said, should people focus on one standard like NIST 800 or several or all? I would say use the one that you have experience with. NIST 800 is mostly for federal government, to be honest with you. Um, so if you're trying, if you were trying to focus on getting the NIST job, I would use anyone that you could. Um, if anyone that you're familiar with, put the definitely put that on there. If you're very familiar with PCI compliance, HIPAA, whatever, put that on there. Reference it. You'll notice that they reference it. Um, so anything that you have either direct experience on or you have direct knowledge on or you're comfortable with it, any kind of exposure, put it on there. Any kind. Um, I would say stay away from the ones that you really don't know anything about. Like I don't normally put Sarbanes-Oxley on my – I don't – because I don't, I just haven't touched it. I know what it is, but I just haven't touched it. So I don't normally put that on my resume. I've touched PCI DSS. I've touched ISO 27001. I've touched NIST CSF, NIST 800. I've, I've touched a little bit of HIPAA. So I'll put that kind of stuff on my resume. I'll feel comfortable. I'll be okay with it. But anything that I really don't know at all, I'm not going to put it on there because they're going to ask me about it. And I'm going to be like, uh, uh. Uh, you know, during the interview. So you don't want to be like that. So put stuff that you're comfortable with, that you have experience on, that kind of, as many as you are comfortable with and you could speak on it. That's what I would do. All right, guys, I think that's it for me. Um, Thank you guys for all your comments. Special shout out to Larry, who's funded this drink right here. Uh, thanks, Larry. I appreciate you, man. Every week you're, you're hooking me up. And thank you for all the people who joined my newsletter. Thank you for all the people who've, who've given me comments on books. It's really helping me out. Um, really, really helping me out to boost my book up. Um, and all you free readers out there, just remember, link in description, link in bio. Go to combocourses.net if you're trying to uh, become get free books, free audio books. I love audio books myself. So free audio books if you want it. Like I have codes out there, only 25. So just sign up. For, uh, it's called Book Sprout. You'll sign up for that, and then it'll give you it'll automatically give you a code that you could use to go listen to those books. And I'm looking for reviews. And there's also free ebooks. You download the ebook, you read it. You got about seven days to go back and do a quick review that and say Bruce is awesome. His knowledge is is incredible. He's the most knowledgeable cybersecurity person on face of the earth. Stuff like that. That's what I want to. That's the kind of stuff you have to put in there just so you know. <laughs> And uh, I think that's about it. 
One last question from Larry. Um, he says, how important is how important is an up-to-date LinkedIn profile? Um, same as maintaining an up-to-date resume, not as important. I feel like there is a trend growing for agencies to review all socials, uh, including LinkedIn. Uh, it's it's pretty important if you're trying to get a job, Larry. Uh, I, I would say every because what I noticed is this. Anytime you go to your LinkedIn profile or your monster.com or your dice, whatever, all of your profiles, whenever you update it, it it kind of like pings. It like pings the algorithm and it instantly starts to boost your boost your material, your content up. So. Give me an example, like my LinkedIn I'm constantly posting stuff like this on my LinkedIn. So I'm constantly getting people contacting me. I'm constantly, the more active you are on your profile, the more employers are seeing you and the more exposure you get because it's it's boosting your stuff on in the algorithm. Your content's being boosted up. So the more up-to-date your profile, it's more. I would argue it's more important than your resume these days. And not only on LinkedIn, but on, on Monster, on on dice.com and all the other profiles it's it's really if you're trying to get a job it's really really important to keep it up to date and because if nothing else it's updating it so that the algorithm in that particular job aggregator is grabbing you and, and boosting you up for because i notice every time i post anything i get a whole bunch of people contacting me too many i get too many people to even respond to Whenever I do anything on any of my profiles. And that's a great problem to have because it's just more opportunities. And a lot of times what I do is I just give it out to other people. I, I'm i getting so many different opportunities, not offers, not job off because I you know, got to go through the interview and all that. But people contact me saying, hey, Bruce, you know, in the local area over here in Colorado, we have this job opening. Man, are you interested in it? And uh, we noticed that you are available. I mean, we noticed that you have experience with X, Y, and Z. Are you available for this job over here in Illinois or whatever? So it's it's very important. I would argue more important than resume because most employers are looking at it. You get more exposure on job aggregators, on your profile. So it's it's super important. All right, guys, that's it. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate everybody. I will see you guys next week or sooner. Hopefully we'll see. Depends on time, which I normally don't have time, but thank you guys so much. I'll see you guys very soon.